Smartcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Hey guys, it's Adam and welcome to E2, Entrepreneurs Exposed, the podcast where I get the privilege of speaking with some of the most interesting pioneers in the world of entrepreneurship. And this is the very first episode. My guest today is Saad Juman. He founded Policy Medical, a leading healthcare and policy management software company that now serves thousands of hospitals and healthcare systems worldwide. But I think more important than that is Saad's personal story, which he takes us through today. I got a ton of value from this conversation. I hope you do as well. So let's get to it. Here we go. My chat with Saad. Policy Medical, that's your business that you have now. How long have you been running that business? Uh, It's going into its 16th year. And you guys service the healthcare space, um, but why don't you tell everybody specifically what you guys do and, and what you offer? Yeah, it, um, well, quite simply, we, we sell to, to hospitals, so we've got lots and lots of hospitals that use our software, and it's out-of-the-box software, and it's meant to uh, increase the compliance of the hospital employees to the policies and procedures that they should be following. So basically, the aha moment I had with this business is there's an opportunity to align the policies and procedures and documents hospitals are creating at the hospital level with all of the laws and legislation that they're supposed to be complying to. So the, the reason I got into the business is because I saw it as a way to impact and improve uh, a patient's uh, health, overall health and safety and, and happiness at the actual hospital. Wow. Um, and so since in 16th year, do you have partners in the business? Uh, we do now. Yeah. Yeah. We've got a, we, we've got a, a couple of other partners uh, and then we even have an ESOP and employee stock option program uh, where other um, some employees actually have the option and have exercised the option to actually own, um, you know, the different percentages of the business as well. So 16 years of running this business, that, that's serious dedication. What did the transition into policy medical look like from, I guess, your days at, at York? You mentioned that you dropped out. What was your life like between York and, say, your first days of policy med? Oh, completely different than my life in policy medical right now. While I was at York University uh, to help pay for tuition, I decided to uh, become a DJ, of all things, to spin records. And I was a pretty good DJ as well um, because that, that paid relatively well and it helped me pay my tuition. But then the entrepreneurial bug um, bit me again. And there was a guy at the end of every evening, whenever I would DJ, that would pay me. And he called himself the event organizer or the promoter. And I thought to myself, well, this guy's paying me, which means that he's getting 
more money than I am. Why don't I, why, why don't I just become the event organizer or the promoter? So, so I did. And, uh, and then those events became a very successful, um, you know, we'd have thousands of people, uh, showing up to those events and I would do them at York university. It, it was so successful that the university came to me and said that, uh, actually you're only allowed to retain a certain amount of money in your bank account because we would, I would, I would utilize the university, um, facilities to actually do these, these particular events. So when I found out that, and I said, what would happen to the rest of the money? They said, well, it just goes to the university. So then I, I, I actually ran one of the most popular student organizations at that time because in order to get rid of a lot of the money, I would organize these really insane skiing trips and all sorts of things. And I would, I would have to charge something. So I charged the students a dollar to go on a ski trip and we would pay for the, the hotel and the food and the Greyhound bus and then everything else just to leave enough money in the bank account. Um, later we started establishing scholarships and other things to help kids, other people with their tuition. But then I, um, I, being an event organizer wasn't enough for me. One night, my head of security for the events, I was counting the money in the, in the kitchen of the venue that we would use. And he just said, just off the cuff, hey, Saad, you know, you should just open your own place at this rate. And I thought, yeah, why don't I just open my own place? So, you know, that was that. that like was for, for these events, like he was suggesting you open your own event space, essentially. Yeah, my own event space, my own venue. Yeah. And, um, and, and during that time, I started getting really acquainted with thoughts, the power of thoughts. And I started realizing that once I locked into a particular thought, that was the hard part, purely committing to a thought. And then it just kind of happens. Like how it happens became not irrelevant, but it just sort of happened. So I locked into the thought of having my own venue. And about a year and a half later, um, I found myself uh, with my first venue in downtown Toronto. And, and the biggest differentiator at that time with the venue is uh, we took over an old abandoned venue that that was closed down we took it over took it over meaning we, we took over the lease and then we retrofitted it and i built toronto's first i guess i guess not its first but it's one of its largest rooftop patios at that time onto the venue and that was my biggest you know being a cold city in the summertime it became a really popular place we'd have this cool rooftop patio of like three thousand square feet on top of this building and i ran that venue um, along with several other venues that i started opening up uh, during that that particular time before Policy Medical, well, uh, so, all, so go ahead. How, how old were how old were you when you opened that first space, that rooftop space, that three thousand square foot space? And you, you keep saying we. So, is there, were there other people involved in this? Yeah, I had a I had another partner, um, and then subsequently with some of the other venues, we had other partners as well that came in on those. I was around twenty years old. It was pretty so, young actually to get into to all of that stuff. So at twenty, you're You've dropped out. You were a successful DJ and uh, event promoter, and then all of a sudden you you own this popular summertime hotspot at 20 years old. Yeah, yeah, and and also, <laughs> I guess it it seems a bit surreal. My eldest brother was he had a company within the tech space. Um, back then, he would he had this company that was essentially the the lead generation or inside sales arm for larger tech companies. So, you know, there used to be companies like Compact Computers and Digital Equipment Corporation and Hummingbird and these types of companies. They would hire my brother's company as their lead generation uh, company. So I started also, by day, I was really interested in selling and technology sales 
so by day I'd work at his company and then by night I would I would um you know I would I would I would run my my actual venues. Like how long of a period was that in your life? About 4 years. So 4 years of days essentially working at, with your brother and nights running your venues. Yes, yeah. And my my brother I worked with my brother during the days and then I also um I left my brother and then I got another job for a company out of Silicon Valley. They were a they they were essentially a sales arm for a company called Alcatel. So I was also a you know, I became well-versed in hardware and XDSL chipsets, and I would interface with silicon foundries, the people that actually made the silicon for microchips from Taiwan. So I, there was always this technology thing going on by day for me, um, and then just really polarizing other other life at, at night. Like with that lifestyle, which, you know, I know you now, I don't know what you were like then, but it feels like that lifestyle would be completely different from the lifestyle that you lead today, you know, as a family man. What was that life like, you know, being young, running these event venues, you know, presumably making a lot of cash, probably a good chunk of that was was undeclared or whatever. I mean, it feels like that was somewhat of an underground world, at least in, in my opinion. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, for the first year or so, you know, it was it was a lot of fun. I'm, I'm not going to lie. Just thinking back, you know, a guy in his early 20s or a person in his early 20s, um, you've got this venue that you own and then you're, you're opening up others and you're making all this cash every weekend. And and you've got you've got lots of friends. Right. And a lot of people that ended up not really actually being your friends, but you've got this entourage kind of surrounding you and you're just in this ongoing party, if, if, if you will. But then very quickly, I became acquainted with the other the other fabric of that world, which is really an underbelly to that world. And I've been removed from that for for quite a long time now, for, you know, about over a decade. So I don't know what it's like anymore on purpose. I stay away from that world. But uh, at that time, the the nightclubs, the the venues, the lounges, um, you know, the things that normal people go to and attend and have some fun. That was that was one reason for it existing. But the other reason is it was also. Um, a vehicle for other organizations, right? Organizations that would be off the radar to sell and funnel um, and market other other products, right? And and sometimes it could be, you know, listeners can use their imagination as to what those products could be, right? It would be things things that probably wouldn't wouldn't be uh, all that healthy for you. But then sometimes it would it would be really like comical, random stuff. I remember just my first acquaintance to that world is I'd be just at my office at the club during the day and then my partner uh would come to me and and say oh, you know if you see the stuff downstairs don't worry about it and i'd go downstairs and i'd see all of these random clothes like racks and racks of clothes and I, and and that would happen that would I, that became like a routine thing where you know random things that would quote unquote fall off of a truck would show up in these clubs by day and there'd be this distribution channel to get them out before the venues before the party started at night so yeah, that's that's so interesting because, you know, you mentioned clothes, but I think of all the other illegal stockkeeping units that could have been bought and sold out of those types of venues. Were you ever worried for your safety I, when I, you were running these venues? Absolutely, and and I, I had cause to to worry for that. I mean, very quickly, the the people that the organizations that that would run that type of world, um, you know, I became known to them, and and they knew. It it was it was very interesting because they they knew me as this they I wasn't I, first of all at York University I wasn't the best student at all 
but within that world, they viewed me as this Einstein, right? So, so they would, they would, you know, I was this computer guy to them because I worked at my, my brother's software company. And, and also when it came to embracing any substances, I didn't smoke cigarettes. I didn't drink alcohol. I didn't partake of any kind of drug. So I was a squeaky clean guy and they, they viewed me as a, as a, a, a good resource to start keeping track of, of, of some of this inventory and, and, and trying to help out. But on the flip side, um, when it came to anything very dangerous, right. Or me, cause remember I was a young guy, so I'd be exposed to all sorts of stuff from your illegal clothes to seeing, you know, tons and tons of, of narcotics and all sorts of stuff. And I remember a few times I would ask about things. I said, Oh, what's that? What's it like to take that? And I remember this, the same people that would be in charge of this underworld, they would come and they would aggressively tell me, no, that's not for you. You're not that type of person. Don't ever think about that. Don't ever come close to that. Don't ever touch that. Uh, they said, you just, you just work on the spreadsheets. So I said, okay. <laughs> and, uh, and that's, and, and they would almost be my, and it was a weird big brother way because they would, they sort of acknowledge that they are what they are and where they are, but they almost viewed me as a, a passerby for now in that world. And they didn't want me to get involved too much in partaking of, of any kind of substances or anything else. So you were always squeaky clean then you never, when you, you mentioned you were partying a lot or up late, you were never actually partaking in the drugs and the alcohol when you were running this business. No, no, I can't. Cause at the end of the night, you've got to count like a lot of money, right? Like, and how, if you're, like how, much, how much money are we talking about? I mean, you're, you're talking about between a weekend and a weekend back then would be, I know it's expanded now because a city like Toronto apparently loves to party. But, uh, by the, when I left, you know, a weekend would be from Wednesday night to Sunday night. Monday, Monday and Tuesday were kind of quieter nights. Um, you know, you'd you'd clear like a maybe a quarter million dollars a weekend. Wow, a quarter million a weekend. Yep. So a lot of it's cash. So so and it's 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 nightclubs and it's you know narcotics and everything else that you're running through those venues. Like, are you operating out of a out of a one of the big five banks in Canada, or are you storing this cash in a safe? Like, how was this being handled? No, you don't. You don't operate out of the bank, and um, and that was an interesting thing. Once I left that world, I look back. When you're in the in that world, you think that you are this untouchable celebrity, right, within the entire city, and the whole city looks up to you. Mm-hmm. When I left it, I realized that I was really like just an insignificant little speck within the city, and and it's not a well respected speck at all. But when it comes to money. We all had our, our stash, you know, you'd, you'd stash it somewhere and it would all be sort of off. Most of it would be off the radar. Uh, and and you, you learn to, you know, you don't pay attention to things like credit. And uh, I, I remember, um, you know, when I when I got married, I was long gone with that with that world. But I remember one thing that my my wife started teaching me again was the value of credit because I never you know, I never relied on anything. You know, she would always ask, she said, why would you go everywhere with cash? You go to the gas station, you go, we go on vacation, like everything is in cash. And I'm thinking back to myself, well, that's the world I'm coming from. You know, when I wanted a car, I'd go to the dealership with a sack, of, with a gym bag filled of cash. And, I, <laughs> and, I, and I'd give it to them and, and they would securely take it away. And I'd, I knew the deal, I'd come back the next day because it takes them a day to count all of that and verify it. <laughs> and then I would just pick up my vehicle and go. And that's, that's kind of the world I was, I was in. Do you remember what that first car was that you bought with cash? Uh, I think it was an, a BMW M3. 
<laughs> it's an expensive car. It's like a what, eighty thousand dollar car? Something like that. Yeah. I mean, and the ironic thing is, I'm I'm not really into cars at all. I mean, right now I drive a slightly dented 2009 Acura MDX, and it's it's <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. It it's funny when it comes to cars. You know, I had an M3, but I also had this um, Chevrolet Celebrity that had three thousand three hundred thousand kilometers on it, beat it up, rusted, with like this Bondo stuff all over it. And that was like your incognito car, just to like get around and take different meetings with different people that wouldn't wouldn't draw a lot of attention. Yeah, and I and I know you in that Acura, and I know you as a family man. So the story of you walking into a dealership and buying an M3 with cash is is very funny to me. It's very comical. Um, so tell me when this life came to an end. Like, what was the tipping point for you? You know, if you, if you asked me that question two years ago, I'd give you a completely different answer. But but I had a bit of an um, I had a bit of an aha moment brought to me through through a, a, a friend of mine, right? And she's a she's an extremely well known uh, therapist and couples therapist, and you know she's given TED talks and all sorts of stuff. And and I was talking to her one day, and I think a lot of this. Why, I mean, the, a question could be, why did I even get involved in this type of stuff, right? And if I trace some of those reasons and maybe the root cause of the pain that maybe led me into a life like that, a lot of it is related to the, maybe related to the fact that I didn't really have a father or a dad that, that was around for, you know, you, you actually asked me about, you know, my teenage years, right? Mm-hmm. I didn't have a dad that was around at all. So I kind of was left up to my own devices, if you will. And my mother, my mother tried her best, but she had five of us and one of her. So that was a lot for her to do. But I, I will say that my, my father uh, reappeared in my life and is, is a part of my life now. But back then, there was a night, actually, that he showed up at, at the main club. And it was, it was that night and what happened that night, actually, in retrospect, after I spoke to this particular friend of mine who's a therapist, she brought to my attention that my father actually gave me a really big gift that night, a gift that I didn't realize until a couple of years ago. And what happened that night was we were raided by the police that, that night. And for nothing heinous or nothing out of a movie, you know, they were they they were they were surveilling lots of clubs and, and they were surveilling some of the people that became involved with with some of mine. And they were trying to cause problems to kind of interrupt the operations of the club. So they raided it that night to take away the, the liquor license. And and so what they did is they raided it. They removed all the alcohol and they said, OK, guys, have a have a great evening tonight. And they, they knew what would happen. They knew that we would have to just shut down until we got the liquor license back. But out of the blue, my father showed up that night and he showed up with his buddies to, to check this place out that he heard his son had because I I didn't have much involvement with my father, but I'd see him like once a year type of thing. And he, he lives in another country. Mm-hmm. So after it was raided, he stuck around and he came up to my office and he had maybe like a 60 to 120 second conversation with me. And it wasn't judgmental in his part. He just stated, I guess, what resonated in my soul as a fact. He said, Saad, he goes, this is not, this stuff is not you. This is not your nature. Uh, you know, you can't have a family. You can't, you can't settle down in any way, shape or form living in this life. It just, it just won't be possible for you. He didn't say leave it. He didn't say stay. He just was giving me his, his life experience. And then he left, but I think that I believe that planted a seed in me that that started making me question: Is this really for me? Um, and then I had another similar sort of uh, in- incident uh, with another blast from the past later that you know I believe later that year, and that's when I decided actually to to walk away 
from from that world. So I just I walked away cold. Um, I even took my my stash that I had and I, I gave it to you know the the, the organization that that you know kind of yeah. ran that the turf that we're on and even my partners and I just gave it to them and said I'm I'm leaving. How, how much money did you give Did you give back? Uh, it's hard to disclose, but you know it's a it was a it was a lot. It was you know it was it was quite a lot. It was in the seven figures. So you just blanket walked away from seven figures. Yeah, and that was it. You never turned back. Didn't turn back. No, no, I do. I do. You know, there are times over the years and it's less and less and less, but you know, my ego misses it sometimes if I'm being completely honest, right? It, it, uh, you know, there, there are parts of it that, that are great for the ego, but, but I don't, I don't look back and pine away and and wish that, Oh, I I need to go back or why did I give that up? No, 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 not at all. When you left that world, presumably you're, you're starting from scratch, right? You said like you haven't built out, you ha- haven't built up any credit. You're walking away from a boatload of money. What was that period like for you? It was uh, it was difficult, but but beautiful. So I walked away from it. Didn't have the fancy car anymore. Didn't have the rooftop penthouse place to go and crash and and hang out. Like I just walked away from all of that. Moved back home with with my mother um, in the family home that I grew up with. And, um, and that's, you know, that's, that, that's where I landed. But then innately, I ended up going back to that. Remember that gym I ran that those basketball leagues I told you about earlier. So I ended up going back to that, that spiritual sanctuary, that mosque. And, um, and I remember waiting and I wasn't very spiritual at at that point in time. And I remember waiting for people to leave in the evening because I knew, you know, when the prayers would, would be over and I, I went to the caretaker who still worked there and I asked for his permission to stay there that, that evening, even though he was closing up. And he knew me and he had mentioned that, you know, he hadn't seen me in a, in a little while, and which, which was an understatement. And, and he knew that, you know, uh, my family was involved with, with, with building some of that place. So he said, OK, no, no problem. You can stay here. And so he locked up and that was probably around, you know, nine o'clock in the evening and I knew that he would be back to open up the place at about five, six o'clock in the morning. And I just went to the the prayer area, which is just a wide open area. And I just sat there and I didn't do anything. I just sat there in silence and in darkness. But with my heart, I started just talking to, uh, you know, the universe or a force greater than myself, asking for a second chance, asking for some way to reinvent myself, asking for some kind of some kind of um, purpose. And, uh, and then I left there that, that evening and then I went back the following evening and then the following evening and I kept on going back again and again and again. And I ended up doing that for, for 10 months over and over again, just asking. And then finally during that time I started, I, you know, I call it a time of solitude now during that about three months into the 10 months, I started getting an answer in a weird way. Right. So with my heart, I'm putting out this, this message in an unscripted way. And, and, you know, nobody taught me how to do this. So this is just from my own intuition, just doing this. And then a a message started coming back into my heart in a way as, as weird and as metaphysical as it all sounds. But, um, but I knew what I felt. And the, the message was more or less, you know what, your purpose is to impact people's health, to impact people's happiness, to be of service to those two things, health and happiness. And that kept on resonating over and over again, health, happiness, health, happiness. 
And at about 10 months, I decided to, to stop going there. I just felt like it was enough. And again, just like I locked into the thought to start the nightclub, you know, and, and in retrospect, I, I'm sure I subscribe to the fact that everything is meant to happen when it's supposed to happen. But also that thought of starting a nightclub wasn't a very positive thought. It was a negative thought. But still, it seems like the universal law is true. If you latch on to something negative, then you'll be drawn to negative things. But I latched on to something positive this time around after that time of solitude. And it was to impact people's health and happiness. And then if I look back at the series of events, they happened really fast, probably over about 18 months for Policy Medical to start. For me to, you know, a series of events, one after the next, leading to the idea, leading to actually starting Policy Medical, which all these years later, we impact millions of employees at hospitals and patients every day, and we improve their health and happiness. It's just through software. That's not that sexy to talk about. Yeah, you know what? I was I was just thinking how amazing it is when 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 you actually s- sort of define what your purpose is in the world, kind of conspires to make it all happen with you and for you. And it sounds like in weird in a weird way, this is exactly what happened with you. The early days of policy medical look like what? Like when you started to get this thing going, you landed your first client. You know how much investment and say in time and money had you sunk into policy and getting it up and running and what did the team look like in the very early days it was so it was so unscripted and simple i found myself in mississauga ontario working at a little startup that doesn't exist anymore they were called healthy connect mm-hmm. and what those guys made they made simple like intranet websites for hospitals where you'd post like a cafeteria menu and, you know, it was a child safety car seat day at the hospital and, and all those types of things. And we were in, I was in charge of selling that product and nobody wanted to buy it. And every time I did sell it once in a while, hospitals would call and say, no, 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 we needed to do this thing. And this thing was what they were trying to describe was a what we have now, which is a policy management system. And, and in fairness to that startup, I took that idea to them and I said, hey, you know, we should probably build this instead because that's just the way my mind works. The customers don't want this. Let's just build this instead. And they weren't interested. They viewed me as a kid. So they said, just go go sell our stuff. So I ended up quitting. And um, and I I spoke to the lead engineer at that startup at that time. And and that was my co-founder. And I, I said, hey, Josh, I go, let's um, let's leave this company. We're young. We've got no, you know, I, I didn't say this, but I guess I was thinking it at that time. We don't have a mortgage. We don't have a wife. We don't have kids. We've got we got nothing except ourselves. What do we have to lose? And I told him, I said, I got this. I've got this amazing um, facility where we can work. It's twenty four access to the twenty four seven access to the office. It's got a gym twenty four seven. There's ongoing catering. He's like, where's this place? I said, it's in Scarborough. It's my mom's basement. She's gonna cook <laughs> for us. We've got a weight bench. We got everything. She can make us smoothies. It's gonna be great. So that's that's what it looked like. We we went and he would show up and we would start we would start working on this idea to build his product. And really the product was built from from the customer base. And it was again, you you, you spoke about the universe conspiring, right? We had the idea, but we just had the idea. We really didn't know what to build or how to build it. And and Google AdWords had kind of started right around that time, like really aggressively started. So we decided, hey, let's try this AdWords thing. So we started putting up a couple of ads. And then that's how hospitals found our website. And American hospitals found us, not Canadian hospitals. 
And and we saw that, oh, okay, so there's a real need in the U.S., not so much Canada. And the U.S. hospitals started sending us these spreadsheets of their requirements. And they would, me being the sales guy, they'd say, hey, can you build this? I said, yeah, we got that. We got that. And then I take the spreadsheet and I give it to Josh. And I was like, Josh, build this now. And <laughs> and and that's that's what we did. And we actually had a prototype up and running within six months of being in my mom's basement. And then at month nine, we got our first customer. I remember it's still our customer to this day uh, in upstate New York. And that that executive, I remember her calling me out and saying, you know what, I get the feeling that we might be your first customer, but, you know, because you can't provide us a reference. And I was just honest with her. I said, no, we don't have any references. You would be our very first reference. Please be our customer. I'll give you a break on the price. And she said, oh, by the way, what is the price? And I just turned to Josh and we gave each other a look and I just made up a price on the spot. I remember charging them nine thousand nine hundred and ninety five dollars. And and I said, you'll have to pay us twelve hundred dollars a year after that. And she said, OK. And that was and that was it. And then a couple of days later and this huge fax machine we had in my mom's basement, the purchase order came in and we couldn't believe it. We thought we were we, were, we thought we made it in life because we said we thought nine thousand nine hundred ninety five dollars. That's awesome. When that check comes five for you, five for me. And then that's and that's that's how we that's how we structured it in those early days. That's amazing. Uh, running out of mom's Google mini Googleplex, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. She's got she's making smoothies. You guys got a gym. That's classic. That's I told I told story. my employee uh, we moved into this new office here in in Richmond Hill, Ontario, and then um, and my mother came to the office and she's telling some of the employees. She said, you know, in the early days, I would be upstairs cooking them lunch. And the kitchen was just above where we were in the basement. And my mother would, she would chop chicken in like the weirdest way. She still does. She'd have one meat cleaver on the chicken. And then she'd have another meat cleaver upside down hitting the other meat cleaver, like to chop the chicken. (laughs) And it would be this huge noise above our heads all the time while I'm cold calling. Because I used to make a couple hundred cold calls a day. Back then, you know, that's the way to, that's the way to get business. You just got to bang out on the phones. And then people would ask, they're like, excuse me, sir, what's that banging in the background? And I'd be demoing the <laughs> software sometimes. And I said, ah, oh, I said, you know what? We're just, you know, we're just expanding. It's just construction in the other part of the office, right? Uh, they're like, oh, wow, that's, that's great for your company. But little did they know that my mom's chopping chicken for our lunch upstairs. Such a, it's, it's, it's so classic, like the early entrepreneurial stories that that you hear about, like, you know, everybody's, always says it's so cliche you're just faking it till you're making it um but this is like a a real deal example of that um and but obviously you were providing value because that client you said that was your very first client that very first po is still your client after 16 years right so you're you're obviously you weren't selling you weren't you weren't blowing smoke so um Nicely done. So now you're you're in Richmond Hill. You went from two in your mom's basement. How many how many are you now? Uh, we've got about thirty full time employees. Then we've got a bunch of contractors, and then we have you know other people that put a lot of full time energy into the company. You know, as as advisors and 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 partners, but they're not necessarily on that that full time payroll. You know, what does your life look like today in terms of uh, the amount of time in your day that you dedicate to Policy medical versus, you know, family time versus wife time, uh, personal time. Like, how does your day break down? 
I think it's very, you know, at this iteration of my life, I, I adhere to like this tripartite division, like a trifector division of my time, more or less. I mean, some days it's a little bit skewed, some weeks it's a bit skewed. But in general, I try to rest for a third of the day. Um, I'll work uh, here at Policy Medical um, for about a third of the day, maybe a little bit less. And then the rest of the day is spent with my children, uh, my wife, my spiritual practices, uh, reading, things unrelated to Policy Medical completely. So that's 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 how it's that's how it's 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 divvied up, and it takes a the world that I live in, which is the world that maybe a lot of people listening to this live in, there's a lot of pressure for that second thing that I mentioned, which is the policy medical stuff or your career or your business or whatever it is, to encroach upon either the rest period or 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 the other time. But I actually think it's those other two times, the rest and also the you know the non-career, non-business time. That's the stuff that that really, really, really counts, and that's the stuff that you're gonna wish you had more of um, when it's time to move on to wherever it is we all respectively believe we're gonna move on to or not move on to. Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree with you. Um, it hits a personal chord, obviously, because uh, you know my dad suffered a major stroke a few years back. He was 67. He ran a business, so uh, his life changed overnight. And I think a big reason for that was his lack of balance. You know, the, the 18, 19 hours a day for 15, 20 years, um, we're just not physically built to handle those working hours. We're just not. Um, something's got to give. And if, if you operate like that, uh, you're going to suffer. Talk to me about your spiritual practice. Does that does that fall? I know you mentioned you said that falls in with the kids and the wife. Does it also fall into the rest period? What does the spiritual practice look like for you? Yeah, I mean the the spiritual practice is uh, it doesn't really involve my wife or children at all. Um, it's my own sort of personal personal time, but my days start relatively early. I used to be a lot more regimented with when I wake up. So in general, I'll wake up at four o'clock, and and I used to set an alarm. And it's weird because if I set an alarm at four o'clock, my eyes open at three fifty nine and I turn the thing off. It never actually rings. Um, it's just a, a weird thing that's been happening for years. But but now I just don't I don't even bring my my alarm clock anything in my bedroom at all in our bedroom I just go to sleep and then whenever I happen to wake up I happen to wake up um, you know and I have my own practices to try to get into a a deeper uh, sleep faster so I find that I get a very restful sleep in a short amount of time so I'll get up at between four to five o'clock and then between that time of rising to about seven o'clock or whenever you know, our 11 month old decides to wake up, which is around that time. That's my, that's my first spiritual practice time. And during that time, I will meditate for quite some time. Um, I may say some, some prayers, some general prayers. Um, I do a tremendous amount of reading. Uh, I'll do a lot of writing, uh, journaling and writing. And, um, is it structured, is it structured journaling or is it just sort of free form? Uh, it's free form. It's just yeah. I have I have books and books and books of of free form stuff. Hmm. And you keep all of that, or do you discard it? I keep it all. Keep it all. Uh, do you tend intend to do something with it one day, like pass it down to your kids? Or yeah, I thought about that the other day, and I think that if they if they just read a few pages, they're going to think that their father was 
was Cray a crazy person or something? They're just going to think, right? But <laughs> but if they read it in context, like over, if they read several volumes, they'll 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 kind of say, okay, this is this is where he was going, or here's here's the trend. So maybe I need to write a few disclaimers and insert it in the <laughs> volume so they know they they know how to how to read the thing. But you know, when when we move on, you know, we leave a lot of things behind us, right? So that's probably some of the things that they'll have and and just have around there. In the world of of journaling and with digital, I, I was just speaking to a friend of mine the other day who was saying that he's moved from free, freeform journaling on a page to Evernote. And I thought to uh, myself, like, that could be dangerous. <laughs> like, who knows? Could, <laughs> who gets who knows their who hands gets on this stuff, right? You know, there, there's one there's one thing that, uh, you know, one, one thought that's coming up here. It's something that I've been, I have been journaling about and thinking about, which is within the world of entrepreneurship, which you live and I live as well, I know, there is this over the last several years, five to 10 years, there's a trend of entrepreneurs acknowledging that tying your identity too closely to uh, to one's business could very well be a mistake, right? And I've got my own aha moments about about that that I can share if you like, but, and, and then moving towards best practices, right? That that term is used a lot, you know, morning rituals, best practices, those, those types of things. And I think those are all valuable, but I, but I feel that in some um, circles of entrepreneurship, we, we could almost be shooting ourselves in the foot in a way by getting overly regimented with the, you know, the morning rituals and the actual best practice routines focus on our health, like going out of a natural cadence. And that's something that I've, I've been playing with over the last couple of years, not getting so attached to what I've got to do every morning. I don't have to work out every morning. I don't have to journal every morning. I don't have to meditate every morning. Um, and uh, and even with sleep, I don't have to wake up at 4 a.m. So I actually think, and and actually a few, a few sort of meditation and spiritual teachers that I have in my life have pointed out to me that sleep is something that we need to be very, very careful guarding. And these are people that are in their 80s and 90s. And, uh, and, and, and I said, what do you mean by that? They said, you can't neglect your sleep. They said, only until around the age of 50, if you neglect your sleep for too long, it starts catching up with you. So that's been a lesson that I've been trying to reintegrate into my life that be a little less structured, even with the non-work stuff. And don't forget about, you know, sleeping longer if you need to and 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 doing a little bit more of nothing if you, if you have to. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And you mentioned something called, I've never heard that terminology before, but I think it's spot on, the natural cadence. You know, I think you're right. When you, when you listen to a lot of the entrepreneurial zeitgeist, it's all about, you know, meditation and journaling and workouts and, you know, certain dieting practices, et cetera, et cetera, almost like it's a one size fits all, uh, formula. And it, and it isn't, it isn't for me either, but I think it's, you know, at least in my experience, it, it's really about finding what those, what that perfect combination is for you, but, but definitely finding that balance. Like what, what does relaxation or, or, or meditation look like for you? I mean, for me, you know, I'm not going to get up at 4 a.m. to meditate for an hour and a half, but I might go for a run at around 6 a.m. for an hour. And for me, that run is meditative. Whereas for you, you know, you going for a run at 4 or 5 a.m., that's not meditative for you. But yet we're both, we, we've got that capital gain in terms of um, doing something meditative or, um, you know, flow state generating in a way that fits for us. Yeah, I think I think fits for us is 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 key. And I also think that entrepreneurs are in a really unique uh, position if they want to to create their own customized reality. I think a lot of us we 
we try to like replicate whoever we read about in Fast Company or Forbes or wherever, Inc. or wherever it is, right? And try to recreate that. But I think there's an opportunity to create what works for you. And I don't have it all figured out, but some of the things that bring me joy is, I mean, within my own personal office at our company, I don't have a formal desk anymore that I sit down. I've got a huge carpet and these huge cushions and I've got my own meditation area. So, so you know, there is a time partly through the day where I have a meditation practice I do at the office. And then I used to be a martial artist. And, you know, right after this interview, I'm probably going to put on uh, my hand wraps and sweats and go into a dojo that I have connected to to the software company and hit the punching bag and do a workout. And that'll be part of my meditation as well. It's almost like that being in high school, right, where your buddy tells you, you know, I think of a friend that I I look up to in grade six because I had no identity in grade six. And I thought he had an identity. I thought he was cool. And he was listening to Metallica. And he was like, listen to Metallica. And I thought, okay, (laughs) I'll I'll listen to Metallica. And I put it on and I go home and I come from like a middle class Jewish family. And like Metallica and middle class Jew just doesn't really fit. (laughs) And it's like I'm listening to Metallica. And my parents are like, what the hell's wrong with you? I'm like, well, this is good. This is what the kids are listening. This is cool music. What I realized is when I actually got into music in grade seven, eight, nine, and actually started playing music seriously in a band, um, I couldn't stand that shit. I was like, I, I, I couldn't hear, I couldn't hear it. I couldn't listen to heavy metal. Uh, but it's funny, like when you, you're trying to, you're trying to be something that you're not, right? Exactly, exactly. And I, th- I think my message to un- entrepreneurs, you know, there are tons of most entrepreneurs are wildly more successful revenue wise than I am, but I would say. Try to live your post-exit life now. And I think that's uh, not, not, not beyond your means, but who's telling me that I couldn't, who told me I couldn't move this business to a location where I could have a warehouse that I can turn into my own dojo because I want to go back there and train and have sparring partners show up from time to time and do that dur- during my workday, right? So, tr- you know, what can you do to, in, a, in some way to live your post-exit life now? Because a lot of entrepreneurs these days, this generation, um, which is probably not my generation, is focused on the exit, right? Or the liquidity event or whatever they call it. Yeah, 100%. It just it reminds me of this quote that I, I had a coach recently tell me. It was about a year ago. I had this fantastic sort of business life coach. Um, and she said... You know, what if you just gave yourself permission? You know, it was almost like I was searching for somebody to validate whatever it is that I was working on or validate what I wanted to work on. You know, I, I think I want to do this. I'm not sure. I'm going to bounce this off of my network and blah, blah, blah. And almost like I'm seeking validation. And then she said to me after listening for five, 10 minutes, you know, what, what if you just gave yourself permission to do this? And I was like, that's just so unbelievably enlightening. And, and it's almost like, a lot of us were operating in this in this world of validation. Like, I have this idea. I'd, I'd love to pursue it. This is a passion of mine, but I, I, I must validate somehow. So I, I've got to go to my network. I've got to bounce this off of advisors or uh, friends or family or whatever, just to make sure that I can have permission to do this. And really, in actual fact, we don't need permission from anybody. We just have to give ourselves the permission to do it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. And uh, maybe we'll do this again. Adam, thank you so much for, for having me. And I'm, I'm super honored to be the, your first guest, as you mentioned at the beginning of this. I mean, uh, I'm, it's, it's been an amazing hour. One of my, my most favorite hours so far of conversation this year. <laughs> I appreciate that. All right, Saad. Thanks, man. We'll talk soon. Thanks. Okay, bye. Take care. Bye. 
Thank you for listening and being a part of E2. E2 is sponsored by Scriberbase, experts in subscription e-commerce. Visit Scriberbase.com for more details. Hitsu Socks, artist design socks for everyday life. Amazing designs can be found at HitsuSocks.com. That's H-I-T-S-U Socks.com. And our good friends at Unbound Merino Stylish, simple merino wool apparel that can be worn for weeks without ever needing a wash. More at UnboundMerino.com. Your positive support means a lot to us. So if you've enjoyed the episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you consume your audio. Until next time, make today count with whatever it is you're working on. Hey guys, it's Miriam Love here, and I want to share something very special with you. Check out my new release, All In, the Spanish remixes, out now on Electrocast Records. And always remember, be love, share love, all love. Available now wherever you listen to music. DC, I host the rock podcast back to the arena, the interviews. It's about a 30 minute podcast where I talk one-on-one with a band who has released new music. You can find us on all the best podcast sites like Spotify, Apple, Google, iHeartRadio, and more. If you're a rock band like me, subscribe today to back to the arena, the interviews. Electric acid. Electric acid.